You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And today is a real treat because we get to pick Dr. Love's brain on um, all things related to mutations because we have received so many questions about this. Before we dive into that, Let's um, let's check in, Andrea, and, and give a little update on what we're working on these days. So what are you up to? You've been very busy. <laughs> huh, I've been very busy. Um, you know, so I so I work for a biotech company, so we're often juggling a lot of different things. Um, I would say the two the two project areas that I've been working on most um, these days are COVID research, um, you know, so specifically virology, vaccine um, screening and, and antiviral screens, and then um, cancer immunotherapy. Those are obviously I'm always working on cancer immunotherapy type stuff, but um, a little bit of that has kind of been tabled. Um, but I'm, I've been recently working a little bit more on that. So looking at, you know, therapeutic options and treatments, um, to treat cancer that are using our immune system, things like CAR T and other sorts of cell therapies. Ooh, I have lots of questions that I'll save for another. <laughs> and day. I was going to say, I'm going to plug. We are going to discuss cancer immunotherapy, cancer treatments, the diversity of cancer. All of those are topics for future podcasts for sure. So, as a reminder uh, for folks, you know, Andrea is an immunologist and microbiologist, and I am also a scientist, but at the population macro level. So, I do very, very different work. So, um, just an example of one of the projects I'm working on right now. Um, my my firm is working with um, a large federally qualified health center, and we're working quite a bit with their um, with their COVID data. Of course, um, we are developing a dashboard for them to track key metrics over time and across subgroups and something that we're focused on now um, using their, their testing and vaccination uptake data to identify disparities across subpopulations with an emphasis on um, you know, sociodemographic factors and social determinants of health. So that'll be, that's really um, you know, relevant <laughs> to many of the things we're talking about. And so, so important. You know, I think we've seen the data that there are very obvious disparities. So I, you know, I love the fact that you're developing that. And certainly that's going to have huge implications. Yeah. And and we just did a post on social media um, about how it's great. Overall, we are moving the needle and people seem more likely um, to, you know, to want to get the vaccine, which is wonderful. Um, but exactly, as you just said, Andrea, we, we still see these um, racial, ethnic and economic disparities. So lots more work to be done. And just one other thing I want to mention is that I'm also teaching a course in uh, biostatistics and epidemiology to physician assistant students at Marist University. So, so shout out to my students if you're listening right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So last week we talked about a very, very important uh, topic, um, and that's human subjects protections and research. And we set the stage by talking about some historical um, 
cases of injustices committed in the name of science and uh, medical research. And, you know, the only silver lining to come out of those atrocities, of course, was the, the, the very stringent regulations that we now have. And, my goodness, is it a very regulated industry? And if you want to do any any sort of hum, you know uh, research involving human subjects, you have to go through very extensive training and certification, and then really detail the entire research process to make sure that you're um, you know informing. You have very transparent informed consent for participants that you're protecting vulnerable populations and so on. So we we really talk about a lot of those regulations. We talk about the Institutional Review Board IRB process, and we ask that you all tune in. And, you know, again, just want to say we, we, we do recognize that there is a lot of distrust among, um, particularly among persons of color of the um, scientific and medical establishment. And we do have a lot of more work to go. Um, but we think it's really important to remind you guys that we have come a very long way and we do have these very stringent regulations in place. So moving on to today's topic, um, obviously we we're all reading in the news, um, and there there's lots of discussion among scientists as well about virus biology, viral mutations, the new SARS-CoV-2 variants. That's all people are talking about right now, and of course all the associated questions. You know, what does that mean for us, and what does that mean? What are the implications for the vaccinations that we currently have, the vaccines that we currently have? So we thought this was a good opportunity to discuss this, review what we know and what it means for vaccines. And we are so fortunate to have um, Dr. Love to be able to walk <laughs> us through these things. So can you take us through this and give us a little primer, <laughs> Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I love how you just kind of like put this on my plate. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, this is going to be high level and certainly if people are interested or have specific questions, go to our website, um, shoot us a question in our email. We obviously respond to all of those as well as messages on Facebook and Instagram. Um, but you know, I've kind of, I think it's important that people kind of understand the, the context of this. Cause you hear in the news that, you know, Oh, there's these new variants. Oh my gosh, it's mutating so quickly. We, you know, so, so viral evolution kind of broadly, it, it's all about mutations, every change in a virus and, and really every change in most cells is, is, are due to mutations. Um, everything mutates, even human cells, you know, cumulative mutations that, you know, change the biology of human cells and cause them to behave aberrantly is is ultimately what leads to things like cancer. Um, mutations themselves are random, um, and and mutations ultimately come down to the the genome of the organism. So a mutation is going to be something where that sequence of RNA in the context of SARS-CoV-2 or the sequence of DNA in the context of, you know, human cells is changed during the process of replication due to random error. Um, you know, things are not perfect. And so errors occur. And ultimately when these mutations happen, you know, that sequence is changed. And sometimes that that change can be completely silent, meaning it doesn't actually change the subsequent gene or the protein that's produced as a result. Um, it could mean that the mutation is actually detrimental to the cell or the organism and that, you know, will be eliminated. 
Um, but if the mutation is beneficial, if it's advantageous, natural selection will prefer that, right? So something that gives a cell or a virus or something like that a benefit, um, that's a mutation that's going to persist in the population. And these mutations occur anytime a cell or a virus replicates. Um, and, and so when we're talking about these mutations in the context of SARS-CoV-2, you know, we have to think about, well, what are advantageous mutations? So in the context of a virus, a virus requires a host to reproduce and complete its life cycle. It, it's not able to survive and reproduce outside of a cell. So things that are advantageous in the context of a virus would be things that enable it to infect a new host. Um, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. Um, a new cell type. So that's what we call a viral tropism. So if a virus normally infected, say, epithelial cells, and now it's able to infect a different type of cell, like an endothelial cell, that's, that's an advantage. It can expand its host range. Things that are also advantageous in the context of the viral life cycle would be how easily it can infect a cell. Um, how easily it can be spread from one host to another, um, you know, the, the disease severity that it causes. And in some viruses or in other pathogens, the disease severity can often be linked to how it's transmitted. So something like a respiratory virus where it needs to be emitted from an infected person through those droplets, something maybe that makes you cough more frequently or sneeze more frequently, that can facilitate more spread. Um, so those are often linked to each other. And then, of course, there are things that allow it to evade or avoid the immune response. So anything that uh, enables the virus to infect us more undetected or, you know, reduce the amount of immune activation we have in response to infection, all of those um, factors can be considered advantageous in the context of viral mutation and evolution. So when we talk about some of these things, that are advantageous in the context of a virus, the ability to infect a new host is, is ultimately how SARS-CoV-2 emerged. Um, so a very quick reminder, SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus. It stands for SARS coronavirus 2 and SARS is severe acute respiratory syndrome. Um, and that causes the disease COVID-19, which stands for coronavirus disease 2019, the year it emerged. Um, now, this virus, was a new virus, right? It, it jumped from another species through a process of mutation into humans, meaning it, it came from a related but not identical virus in a different species um, that ultimately mutated to the point where it could now infect people. Um, and these types of diseases are called zoonotic diseases. So zoonotic diseases are diseases that normally infect animals, that's the zoo uh, prefix, and, and ultimately can then also infect humans. And interestingly, uh, the World Health Organization and CDC estimate that the majority of all human diseases across the board, so 61% of all human diseases are zoonotic in origin, um, and 75% of new diseases that have been discovered or have emerged in the last 10 years are zoonotic. So we're seeing that the majority of human illnesses are in fact zoonotic to begin with, but we're accelerating the rate and the proportion of new diseases that are now zoonotic. 
And there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, but let me just kind of give a couple of examples first, and maybe we can quickly chat about, about this zoonotic transfer issue. So there's a lot of different zoonotic diseases. And I'm again, the majority of them are, I'm not going to get into every example, but um, you know, viruses are routinely zoonotic. So of course, SARS-CoV-2 is um, the original SARS, like the, the OG SARS, which is SARS-CoV-1 um, is also zoonotic. It was thought to have jumped from civets, which is uh, we call them civet cats, but they're not technically cats from, from civets to humans. Um, MERS also, uh, another coronavirus that caused MERS-CoV, so MERS coronavirus, that's Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Um, that was thought to have evolved from camels to humans. Um, a lot of our influenza viruses, especially the ones that we call avian or swine, things like that, those are obviously evolved from animal viruses, a variety of other viruses that are zoonotic. Um, we also have bacterial pathogens that are zoonotic. Things like salmonella. So salmonella are bacterium that normally live in the guts of cows, pigs, other uh, poultry and other species. And those can be passed to humans as well. Um, Escherichia coli, which we call colloquially E. coli, um, is found in the, the GI tract of cows, but other mammals as well. We actually have harmless strains of E. coli that live in, in our guts as well. But obviously, there are pathogenic strains that can cause disease to us. And there's also things that are less commonly heard about. Parasites like Toxoplasma gondii, which is uh, a parasite that lives in cats. And that's actually the reason that pregnant uh, people cannot clean litter boxes of cats because that can be transferred. And when you're immunocompromised during pregnancy, it can actually be quite dangerous. I was just going to say that got me out of changing my cat litter boxes <laughs> in both of my pregnancies. It was glorious. <laughs> I have to say, you know, I worked in a toxoplasma lab for quite a while and I've had cats my entire life. And when I was younger, you know, some of them were outdoor cats and it's very likely that I have toxoplasma cysts in my brain, but hopefully, oh you know, God. if you don't become immunocompromised, it's, it's, you know, a very low risk to humans, but it is something that can be passed from cats. Uh, and other and other animals that pick it up inadvertently, um, but it, but you know this kind of brings up a good question. So these zoonotic diseases kind of evolve because of our interaction with other species. So you know some of the reason why we're seeing this increased prevalence and this increased proportion of zoonotic diseases emerging in humans is due to things like development of wild habitats, um, globalization, um, these, these animal markets where animals that normally would never interact with each other in the wild, but are housed in very unsafe and unclean conditions are now living together. Those facilitate the mutation and spread of disease. Um, certainly, you know, factory farm-based agriculture where animals are kept in tight quarters, in unclean quarters, and then the farmers themselves are interacting with them closely, that can also facilitate spread. Um, and then urbanization. So as we develop, you know, more rural lands and we build, um, you know, on land that was previously wild, we are now encroaching on animal species like rodents and deer and things like that. And that facilitates, you know, spread of a variety of other diseases as well. So it's, it's something where human behavior has also contributed to the acceleration of the evolution of these diseases. Well, that is very interesting. Um, 
And, you know, Andrea, I guess, can I, can I move things to a question that, um, I don't want to shift gears, sorry, if, if there are other things you want to talk about um, with regard to zoonotic diseases, but the question that we keep getting from, from folks, or I don't even know if it's a question, it's just there, there's constant comparison of SARS-CoV-2 with influenza. And so, you know, you were, you were talking about how everything mutates, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess the question is how quickly things are yeah. mutating. <laughs> so so I, I read, and I really have to defer to you as the expert on this, that it appears that SARS-CoV-2 is mutating slower than, um, you know, as, well, as compared to other RNA viruses. And again, this is my total layperson take on this, but some scientists seem to attribute this to its ability to proofread newly made RNA copies and that this proofreading function doesn't exist in most other RNA viruses, including influenza. So, you know, I don't know if you can comment on that. I, I, I also read that it's estimated that SARS-CoV-2 is mutating at a rate that's approximately four times slower than the influenza virus. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about comparisons between SARS-CoV-2 and influenza and the rate of mutation? Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, absolutely. So make sure to tune into the HIV episode, everybody, because we talked a little bit about uh, the different classifications of viruses. And, you know, I feel like I need to preface not all viruses are equal and certainly not all RNA viruses are equal. And so, you know, I kind of hate comparing to influenza because influenza viruses are really very unique, even in the context of RNA viruses, um, because they are their genome is actually made up of multiple pieces or segments, which make it very prone to mutation. It can really freely exchange these pieces. And I'll talk about that in just a second. Um, But yeah, everything is mutating. SARS-CoV-2 has incurred thousands of mutations. And when people who are not in the field hear that, they they get really nervous. They're like, wow, that's a lot. Um, But it's actually quite slow, as you mentioned. Um, And it does, in fact, mutate relatively slowly, especially compared to other RNA viruses. So DNA viruses of kind of 
all of the viruses mutate the slowest because they have multiple steps of replication and they do have multiple proofreading steps. Um, but the coronaviruses and SARS-CoV-2 is one of those does in fact have a proofreading mechanism, unlike some of these other RNA viruses. So the rate of mutation we use is, is, is in terms of what we call substitutions per nucleotide per cell infection. So substitution is just a change from one piece of the RNA to another. And the nucleotide is the actual piece of the RNA that we're substituting, um, but it's per cell infection. So, you know, the mutation rate can start out slow, but it can be accelerated if there's more spread. So the more infections you have, the faster the mutation rate will become. And that's really why mitigation is very important. Um, and why we're all freaking out over vaccination and wanting everyone to get vaccinated as quickly as possible, right? To give this virus fewer opportunities to be transmitted and therefore to mutate. Exactly. And we're seeing these mutations emerge. And so we want to, you know, you can't just, it's not a free for all, right? Just because we have vaccines, because if we have uncontrolled spread and this virus is still spreading, you know, because mutations are random, anything that accelerates that random process, which is mutations, um, you know, every infection is going to accelerate that. And so we want to we want to try and kind of moderate that as much as we can. You know, so so as you mentioned, it does mutate much more slowly than influenza viruses. And and it and it's because it has this enzyme and the enzyme's called an exonuclease and this is what helps it do this proofreading. So basically what it does is as it's reproducing that RNA because it has to make copies of it, it's reading it and that enzyme will cut out errors and it will replace it with the correct um, sequence. And so that's a very different process compared to other RNA viruses like influenza. And, and, you know, that kind of leads us into this process. So viruses mutate through a variety of processes and influenza has this very unique process called antigenic shift. Um, and I will talk about that, but that basically enables it to change completely from one type of influenza virus to another um, through that free exchange of, of legitimate segments of the genome as opposed to very small mutations. And, and something I think that's important to note is that we are tracking these mutations. So we know that thousands of them have occurred. There's a, an online repository and consortium of scientists. It's called the Global Initiative on Sharing All Influenza Data, or GS. Uh, G-I-S-A-I-D. And that normally is devoted to influenza virus data and influenza virus mutations, but it's also now um, containing all the SARS-CoV-2 information. So as I mentioned, viruses are mutating all the time, and typically they're mutating through this process that leads to a phenomenon called antigenic drift. And antigenic drift is the slow accumulation of mutations that ultimately change a piece of the virus that we call an antigen. Um, influenza, as I mentioned, I really hate using it as a comparison because it's so different. It's so unique. It mutates faster and more rapidly through a separate process called antigenic shift, which is again, as I mentioned, a legitimate change outright in the antigen. So it changes completely from one type to another. And those are when you hear the like H1N1, H3N2, H2N2, those numbers and letters are very different antigens. So it might be worth kind of describing what an antigen is. Um, so an antigen is essentially a piece of the pathogen that triggers the immune response or, or interacts with antibodies that are produced 
by by the immune system. And so typically, every pathogen has different antigens. Um, You know, most of them have multiple antigens. These are often proteins that are expressed or um, displayed on the outside of a pathogen, but they can also be things like sugars in the context of bacterium and things like that. So in the context of SARS-CoV-2, there are numerous antigens, but the one we've heard most about are the spike protein. Um, So the spikes are the proteins that are outside or on the outside of the virus. And those are the ones that interact with the receptor ACE2 on our cells and is what enables them to infect our cells. And that's, of course, a very important antigen for a variety of reasons. So, oops, sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. Um, I I was just going to say, you know, obviously we're all worried about these new COVID variants. Um, There are, there are three that I know I keep hearing about, and I'm sure you'll, you can talk to, to us about those. Um, But ones that were first identified in the UK, uh, South Africa, and in Brazil. And I know I keep reading that these new variants are estimated to be much more transmissible. And, you know, you're talking about the spike protein, and I'm reading that they have mutations in the spike protein protein. So what does that mean for us? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it has a variety of implications, Jess. And, and some of that, you know, as I mentioned, so so the spike protein first, it, the piece of the virus that's that lock or the key that opens the lock on our cells, right? So that spike protein interacts with the receptor on our cells, which is that ACE2, and it enables the virus to infect us. So you know, as long as that fits, it's going to continue to be able to infect us. If a mutation ever emerged where that particular virus, that that lock and key didn't fit, then it wouldn't be able to infect us. And ultimately that would get removed from the viral population. But mutations in that spike protein that, that enable it to better infect us, so it enable it to be a better key to that ACE2 lock, as it were, can be selected for, right? So again, these mutations are random, but ones that emerge that are beneficial are going to stay in that virus population and and ultimately will become predominant because they'll compete, they'll outcompete the other um, the other variants. So these three that we've heard a lot about, and they're called B117, B1351, and P1, or 501V1, V2, and V3. Um these all have mutations in that spike protein. And so right now there is data that suggests they are more transmissible. And um, we don't know exactly what that means yet. We don't know what the mechanism of that is. We don't know if it means that it's better able to grab onto our cells so you can get infected with a shorter exposure or a lower dose of virus, um, as it were. Uh, We don't know if it has to do with, you know, how long it can persist or if it's actually infecting slightly different cells. We don't really understand the mechanism, but we know that um, it's spreading more rapidly. And they're estimating anywhere between 50% more transmissible all the way up to 75% more transmissible. And so that's obviously concerning because what that means is if we're continuing everything as we are, mitigation measures and things like that, that means that we're going to see increased spread. If we change our mitigation measures and we become more strict and more stringent, we may be able to slow it down Um, you know, kind of to the rate that we're seeing spread now. But of course, as I mentioned, that's concerning because 
again, faster spread means more mutations. So these mutations may not be the end of the story. We may start to see additional mutations emerge. Um, and that's that's kind of the big difference between these variants. So B117 has a variety of mutations, um, but but less mutations compared to B1351, which is that South African variant. Um, so that one has additional mutations in the spike protein. And so as these mutations kind of persist, you're changing the physical structure of that spike protein. And that's what leads to changes in the, the whole protein itself and the behavior of the virus. And that's kind of that phenomenon, antigenic drift. So eventually enough mutations may occur that physically change that spike protein to something that's no longer, you know, what it used to be structurally, behaviorally, and all of that. So, so Andrea, can I, and I'm sure you have a lot more to say about this, but, you know, this just makes me think about what we've heard from the herd, and it's a question that I have, you know, what is this, what does this all mean <laughs> um, in terms of the vaccines? You know, does this mean that because it's mutating so quickly, we might need boosters? Um, do we think that it's going to end up being something like influenza where we have to get vaccinated you know, every year or on some sort of a regular basis? What are the implications of this? Yeah, it's a great question, Jess. And, you know, a, a lot of it we don't know the answer to yet, of course. But but in the context of these vaccines, you know, this antigen, this spike protein is what the vaccine is targeting, right? So the vaccine mimics natural infection and is tricking the immune system into mounting this response um, to establish this memory immunity. And so vaccines contain antigens, um, you know, as opposed to the live kind of virulent virus, they're containing those components that are going to mimic and trick the immune system. And so for the vaccines that we're currently using, um, those are the spike protein. And so, you know, we're using a sequence uh, in the RNA vaccines that are to the previous version of the spike protein, the unmutated version, as it were, um, the viral vector vaccines like the Oxford AstraZeneca and the Johnson and Johnson are using, you know, the the gene sequence for that as well. And so when the vaccine triggers the production of that spike protein by our body, um, that spike protein is not going to include those those new mutations. So when our immune system is recognizing the vaccine, it's going to be against the original spike structure. So the more changes that occur, the the less of a perfect fit our immune response to that vaccine will be. So you know, in theory, the more changes that we see in the the circulating virus in with regard to the spike protein that ultimately could have an impact on the efficacy of the vaccine. We we've posted about this. I mean, I know the two vaccines that that are currently approved in the U.S. And again, correct me if I'm mistaken, but you know the fi Pfizer uh, BioNTech and the Moderna vaccines. You know, we they they have such high efficacy to to begin with that even if they are um, you know, ha have have less efficacy for um, for these mutations because we're starting at such a high efficacy. It's still an impressive amount of protection. Does that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? So you know, there's been some some early preliminary studies that show that there's you know a reduction in the ability of those vaccine induced antibodies to bind the new variants. But again, we don't know how much of an impact on, you know, functional efficacy of the vaccine that we'll actually have because we do have such a nice, robust response with the vaccine. 
Um, but of course, it's something to keep in mind because the more mutations that occur, you know, the more of an impact that might have. And and ultimately, if it, if these antigens change substantially enough, it, it may in fact mean that we need to reformulate the vaccine with the with the new kind of structure of the antigen so that we can get a, a more potent immune response. And some of that is obviously going to play out in real time where we can kind of watch this situation evolve, see how, you know, the vaccines are at reducing infection and things like that, reducing um, the spread of COVID-19. So, you know, certainly mutation can affect vaccine efficacy. Um, I think there was some preliminary data from the phase 2B trial with Novavax, which is, you know, not one of the currently um, authorized vaccines, but that they are seeing a little bit of an effect, um, even amongst the clinical trial, that in response to some of these variants, it is slightly less effective. Now, again, we don't need 100 percent efficacy of a vaccine to kind of stop this pandemic. But we we want to make sure that the vaccines we're using are still effective. Right. So can we end on a, well, I don't know if this is an optimistic note, but I, I mean, I'm just so floored by what scientists have been able to achieve thus far, you know, with the development of these vaccines. And um, obviously, this is something that's being monitored very closely. These mutations are being monitored. Um, and I'm, you know, it's it sounds like Yes, there's a possibility we'll need boosters. Yes, there's a possibility that we might need some sort of a, you know, another shot, an annual shot or, you know, some continued vaccination. Um, But it's all sort of unclear at this time. Um, And again, all of this just underscores the necessity to roll out vaccines as quickly as possible to try to prevent um, the transmission of this virus, because the, you know, the, the less it's transmitted, <laughs> the less opportunity we give it to mutate. Um, that That's my takeaway. Um, I don't know, Andrea, if you have anything else to add before you take us home today. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think obviously there's a lot of, a lot of factors to consider. We, we talked a little bit about kind of the increased transmissibility of these viruses and, and that certainly, you know, has implications because if something can be transmitted more easily, um, you know, we need to be more stringent. It's very different from changes in virulence, which is disease severity. Um, you know, as of right now, there's not a lot of evidence that these new variants cause, you know, more severe disease or more increased mortality. There's some early data from the UK variant B117 that that it may be associated with an increased risk of death, but it's still unclear if um, that's truly due to the virus itself or it's due to other factors like the overwhelming of hospital systems because of how rampant disease is right now. But all of those factors can obviously play into you know, the entire public health burden of this pandemic. And certainly, you know, vaccines are critical to slowing that down. Um, You know, whether we're able to kind of slow the mutation rate of or kind of, you know, halt the the number of emerging variants where we are, whether we see more of those emerge. Um, You know, we've also talked about double masking and, you know, please check our social media for stuff on that. Um, That's going to be obviously an important factor in terms of mitigating the the rapid spread of these new variants. But certainly, you know, vaccines are going to be on top of mind of everybody. You know, we do know that Pfizer and Moderna are working on adjustments to the vaccines, um, keeping in mind the additional mutations of some of these new variants. So if it does, you know, evolve that the current vaccines are not as effective as we hoped, 
uh, we may be able to reformulate and, and roll those out relatively quickly. So, you know, I don't think that these new variants are kind of the end of vaccine efficacy, but it's certainly something that we want to keep our eyes on and, you know, be vigilant and continue to do that. And certainly um, we need to accelerate the rollout and deployment of the vaccines we have available. All right, Andrea, take us home. All right. Um, so I hope hope this kind of answered some of the questions about mutations and, you know, put into some context about SARS-CoV-2. It is mutating. Mutations always occur. It's, it's you know, some of these variants are of concern, um, but they're not the only mutations that have happened. It, it does, you know, mutate more slowly than influenza, which, of course, is its own unique little virus. But, of course, we do want to keep these mutations in mind because that it can have potential implications for the vaccine efficacy. Um, so thanks for joining us today. We hope you learned a thing or two. And, again, if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to check our website at www.unbiasedscipod.com. Um, you can see all the links for studies and data we reference on each episode. You can support the pod by picking up some merch or dropping us a donation. And of course, you can leave us questions and send us emails if you have anything that we haven't answered. Next week, we are going to take a little break from COVID-19 and talk about something we get a lot of questions about, and that is essential oils. Um, we will, of course, continue to provide updates on COVID-19 vaccine progress on our social media accounts. Um, so be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist.